Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute and today's topic is racism and the echoes in Indonesia of the Black Lives Matter protests triggered by the murder of George Floyd in May in Minneapolis. In the wake of these US protests, a Papuan Lives Matter discourse has emerged in Indonesia, scrutinizing racism against the indigenous populations of Indonesia's two easternmost provinces, Papua and West Papua, site of a protracted conflict for independence between the Indonesian government and sections of Papuan society. Papuan Lives Matter, of course, itself follows on from the massive sustained anti-racism protests in Papua in August and September 2019, after Papuan students studying in Surabaya and Malang in East Java found themselves the target of racial abuse in the days leading up to Indonesia's Independence Day in August. To discuss racism towards Papuans, its impacts and drivers, I'm joined today by Ligia Giai, a PhD candidate at the Asia Research Centre at Murdoch University in Perth and a frequent author on racism against Papuans. Gia, thanks so much for joining us on Talking Indonesia today. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And could I start by asking you, in what forms do we see racism against Papuans manifest? All kinds of forms. People have created like this dichotomy, not perhaps a dichotomy, but differentiating the more structural element of racism towards Papuan and then the more everyday ones. And I'd like just to keep this in mind, even though this differentiation does not always hold, because especially when, uh, in this case, the case that actually began last August during the the, uh, repeated demonstrations in many cities in Indonesia because of racism towards Papuans. It was a protest mostly against the more more everyday forms of racism, something which is uh, more acutely experienced by Papuans who are outside of Papua. So people, um, so students who are studying, going to universities uh, outside of Papua are more susceptible to this. And um, what began in August was part of this experience of students being away from home and because of that, just being more vulnerable to racism that Indonesia has. Now, you've differentiated there between everyday and structural racism, although you say the categories overlap. Um, For Papuans, say, studying in Java or other parts of Indonesia, what would be examples of the sort of everyday racism they're encountering. The most horrible one was, of course, the one that happened in, in August that was recorded on video about how they were called monkeys. Something which is unfortunately not uncommon. You sometimes hear whispers, but you choose your battles. Football players, there are some Papuan football players who are playing like in Java. And um, during matches, I think someone experienced, someone threw a banana peel into the field. Papuans being called monkeys is kind of a small part of the experience. Other experiences are, I think students have been saying stories about how when they enter into public transport, people would close their nose because they're presumably smelly. But then it kind of moves into a direction wherein it becomes kind of a bit more structural when Papuan students experience more difficulties in finding housing. 
if this is either when you want to find a boarding room or if you as a Papuan want to find a house to contract. Not a lot of people are willing to um, contract houses to Papuans. And then it progresses perhaps a bit further when Papuan students, if they have discussions, it's always seen with suspicion. So they cannot always find venues to have discussions about Papua. So I guess that's the more everyday to not so everyday experiences of racism. Why do we see this racism against Papuans in Indonesia? Um, I don't know. It's a question that has not been explored yet. I think more research is necessary. I just always thought that it is connected with the belief that most Indonesians have that Papuans are incapable or at least less capable than them but also the belief that Papuans are less capable and um, less civilized because this is a word that has been thrown around a lot that Papuans need to be developed needs to be improved have played a big role in this because it allows them to ignore what Papuans believe and what Papuans want and from there it is the refusal among Papuans to play into this belief that I think perhaps has played a role in the racism because it some racism can be paternal, the one that believes that we're not enough and therefore they should step in. And this is part of a thing that you sometimes hear when Papuans demand independence or demand referendum, the idea that Papuans are not grateful and therefore they deserve no sympathy. I think what racism has done to Papua, one of the most horrible influence thereof is that it has made people believe that it has dehumanized Papuans, made people believe that if Papuans suffer, it is because they deserve it, because they did not want to play along with, or they did not want to play along and participate in this development or this belief that we are there to make them better, something like that. And yeah, more research is definitely necessary because I have no idea which one became first. I do know that Papuans, there there were already expressions of rejection towards integration with Indonesia from the 60s when Indonesians first arrived. And we also know that when Indonesians arrived in the 60s, they already came with the idea that Papuans are people that need to be saved from themselves. Uh, for the, from the Netherlands as well, of course, but also from themselves. And like these two visions never really... I don't know, mingled and got along well. They never really converge into something that is not painful. Hearing you talk about this was an attitude that Indonesians held from their first moment of arrival in Papua in the 60s. I mean, you've also, in some of your earlier work, highlighted parallels between attitudes that were being expressed towards Papuans centuries ago under colonial control with some of the stereotypes that we see today. In drawing those parallels, do you see a, uh, I guess, a direct link between attitudes that formed during the Dutch colonial period and the sort of attitudes that we see in Indonesia today? I'm a student training in history, so I cannot really make those broad statements without a proof of overtime changes. But what I wanted to say was actually that, and the BA thesis itself is just a beginning of what is going to be a very long and like multi-series project, hopefully in the future. But what I wanted to say when I was writing that was that the Netherlands did not spend a lot of time in Papua. They did not have a lot of direct contact with Papuans before they started occupying. So in the 17th century, and this, is, this continued until the Netherlands 
occupied Papua slowly, I think from the 1890s. Their encounters with Papuans were heavily mediated by other groups in uh, what later on become the Netherlands East Indies. So you have people from the Malaccas, you have Japanese, you have um, Chinese merchants, you have Arabic merchants. So Papuans are a group that are very often talked about, but there are not a lot of records of people having talked with Papuans themselves. So what I was trying to say was actually that it is too harsh if you want to say that all these assumptions about Papuans and their so-called primitiveness and everything only has Dutch origins. Because if you look at records, we can see that there are always intermediaries, people who are the so-called quote-unquote experts on Papua, who have always played a role in shaping what the Dutch believe to be true about Papuans. Now, I mean, if we look in contemporary terms, does it make sense to talk about particular perpetrators of racism against Papuans? And I mean, I guess in a related way, you know, obviously Papuans is a is a term that we're using to refer to a very diverse population. Uh, are there particular segments of the population in Papua and West Papua who are particular targets of racism? I would say that based on the demonstrations and videos, people from the interior of Papua seem to be disproportionately targeted by this. Of course, that is not saying much because it seems like there's a grading scale on how affected you are by racism. And like if the worst of the brunt are carried by students from the highlands, there is still a lot of level of horrible that you can experience before you get to that point. What about... From the point of view of perpetrators, are there particular groups within society who are much more likely to perpetrate racism against Papuans, or or is this something that's ubiquitous within Indonesia? I would say it's more ubiquitous, but of course the expressions differ just because the powers that people have differ. Like the violent apprehension of students almost always involves the apparatus being there, or while the other Indonesians. This is I'm talking about Obikogoya and like the siege of the um, student dorm in Surabaya last August. Obikogoya, a Papuan student, was violently forced to the ground by police in Yogyakarta in 2016 as he tried to join a planned protest at a student dormitory. A Getty image of the moment shows one of the people restraining Kogoya forcing their fingers up his nostrils. Kogoya later received a four-month suspended sentence for the incident for violently resisting police. What you see there was not just the violent ways in which students were treated, but also the lack of action, the lack of care from people who are around them to witness it. So I guess, yeah, this is more ubiquitous, but your, the level of power you have perhaps kind of determines how far you are going in being racist. Sure, sure. So you're saying, you know, in... Incidents like these sieges of student dormitories in Java, the the security forces have been the main perpetrators. But because of the dehumanising effect of racism against Papuans, there's been very little local response as well. I think there were also some vigilante groups who were involved, but then also the apparatus did not do anything to deter their actions. So, yeah, it's I don't know. I it just feels like everyone there is racist. You just you're just a mob, not exactly a mob, perhaps that's perhaps not the right word, but there you have a group of people who are intent on being racist and they're like edging each other on um, and Papuans are there in the middle, target from target 
I don't know, like kind of a playing field in these people and their actions. But yeah, I'm perhaps being too harsh, but it's kind of difficult to have a charitable reading of people just standing while someone is beating a student up or people who yell monkeys and other people not stopping them. It's, I cannot understand that. And I mean, you've, you've mentioned there, you have the security forces, both sometimes as, as perpetrators or failing to intervene to protect Papuan students uh, when they're attacked by vigilante groups. If we look at the role of the Indonesian government more broadly, what has been its response to the sort of racism we've seen against Papuans in Indonesia? Um, does it play a role primarily what you're describing there for the security forces of, of perpetration and omission, or, or is the range of roles we see from the Indonesian government much broader than that? Based on what happened last August, the first response was to ask Papuans to forgive. Then the second wave of response came in, which is which was uh, like photo shoot tours, like with some random Papuan students. And then you have the next level, or perhaps sometimes they happen at the same time, I guess, where you will have people saying things like, there's no such thing as racism. There was no racism involved in this whole event or something like that. So there are different kind of actions taken, but none of them recognize that what happened was racist or horrible, I guess. So, yeah. So, I mean, obviously there in your answer, you're focusing um, on the protests uh, after the the siege of a student dormitory in East Java in in August last year. Um, But, you know, also there have been racist incidents uh, over the years prior to that uh, in Indonesia as well. Um, What sort of movement have we seen in Papua to counter uh, these these sorts of racist incidents? Papuans have always known that these racist incidents are to be expected um, what made August uh, the what made the siege in Surabaya in August two thousand nineteen different was that it's that it was recorded on camera, um, and it spurred major demonstrations in cities, uh, in big towns and smaller towns in West Papua. Uh, the government has not responded well to these demonstrations. First, they responded too slowly. So a few days later, when the next wave of demonstration began. It was a demand for independence, which, of course, the government responded to those protests really harshly. In Wagete Dei, we had to see videos of the apparatus just basically opening fire to the public. And in Jayapura, it led to the imprisonment of seven political prisoners. Those seven political prisoners you mentioned, you're referring there to the people who have been on trial in Balikpapan in, in Kalimantan recently, is that right? Yes, I am. Um, they were taken into custody uh, for allegedly being involved in these demonstrations. And then they were transported to Balikpapan for trial. But the government was stating that their transport, which was actually done quietly, so that was already a source of alarm. The government said it's to give them a I guess, more fair trial, but also for the sake of stability. They were all accused of treason. And I guess this is where we are going to have to start the discussion of how how is it possible that an anti-racism protest is apparently too close to treason um, for the comfort of the government? 
I think that's a important issue to, to cover because even in response to the Papuan Lives Matter protests that, that we've seen more recently after, after the murder of George Floyd and the, the, the Black Lives Matter protests in the US, um, we saw a foreign affairs spokesperson in Indonesia, Tuku Pfizer telling ABC in an interview that to, to quote the proponents of the Papuan campaign, uh, by which he means about racism, uh, are those who aim to separate the provinces of Papua from Indonesia. I mean, is this something that, that you would say is a, a standard Indonesian government response of, of conflating racism and, and a demand for independence? Yes, it is. And this is not the first time we hear these kinds of statements. We are, I am actually used to having to hear time and time again, every time this happens, that some government official coming out and saying, actually, there is no racism. This is not a debate that I'm actually interested in participating in because it is obvious that racism exists. And I cannot believe that we still have to discuss that. Of course, these people never mention like these. Every time this happens and they insist that racism does not exist, um, not toward Papuans, they don't give us any other word to describe what term we are going to use to speak when someone is being called a monkey just because they're black, when someone is denied housing, when someone finds it difficult to conduct public discussions. Like, I don't know, if, it's, if this is not racism, then really, what is it? When you see those sorts of statements by Indonesian government officials, though, do you think that has a strong effect in shaping the attitudes of Indonesians towards protests of the, the sort that we saw last August and September in, in response to the student dormitory attacks or, I guess, the sorts of protests that we've seen as part of the Papuan Lives Matter uh, movement? I think uh, what the government officials say, and they've said this repeatedly, is not it's not, it doesn't as much influence um, what people believe about Papuans as it um, reflects it. Um, every time Papuans uh, cry racism, the first, the fir- their first um, reaction is to deny that it exists. And because they deny that it exists, they're also denying the fact that this country is, this, that this is a racist country. Um, and this is why what we hear every time Papuans demonstrate is this um, chiding, this scolding, that Papuans are not grateful. Um, but also, wh- what is actually most troubling about this is actually um, to hear people who love Indonesia so much, yet unwilling to confront the fact that it is racist. Um, you're not giving Papuans a lot of space to um, protest, to express themselves, to make Indonesia perhaps better. What, they, what is demanded is to, for Papuans to not say anything, um, for Papuans to just accept things as they are. But there are, no, uh, there are no public discussions about how we can make Indonesia as a country less racist, more inclusive towards Papuans. Like, those are missing. So what is going on there? Um, I, yeah, it, this is something that still is, I still cannot understand. Why is it impossible for people who really love Indonesia to vision an Indonesia that is not racist toward Papuans? This is 
the demand for a country to not be racist should not be seen as a threat to your country if you really love it. But apparently it is. So, yeah, this is why every time... um, This is why every time there's a protest and everything, it really... What we re- what Papuans have to hear repeatedly is um, the, uh, I don't know, mantra sermons about how Indonesia as it is is already enough. And no talks about how Indonesia can be better toward Papuans, which is, yeah, just depressing. I guess one of the features of the, I guess, global echoes of the Black Lives Matters protests in the US this year uh, has been a, I guess, a reckoning in in almost every society around the world um, of of really scrutinizing the the everyday and structural racism uh, that we see in in pretty much every country in the world. Um, I I guess when you turn to Indonesia and and those sorts of, uh, you know, where you're saying people who love Indonesia are not able to uh, sort of uh, imagine in Indonesia where where this sort of racism does not exist. Uh, has there has there been any change in in that sort of perspective as a result of the Black Lives Matter movement and the the Papuan Lives Matter, uh, I guess, discussions that that have arisen in Indonesia in the wake of it? Uh, yes, um, Roni Kareni and um, Veronica Koman wrote an op at I think in the Sydney Morning Herald a few weeks ago which speaks about how there is a raising solidarity from students towards the plight of Papuans, especially under the legal system. So that is a heartening and encouraging sign. We just have no idea how long we can sustain it, hopefully forever, but yeah. Because, I mean, I was going to ask you, obviously, um, you know, one focus in the US of those Black Lives Matters protests and movement has, in fact, been both to encourage white supporters there to take action and, and to change the hearts and minds of white people who don't support the movement. Uh, I mean, is there a similar opportunity within Indonesia for Papuans to, to mobilise supporters and, and change the minds of non-Papuans about racism and, and the circumstances of Papuans? I don't know. Um, the trial of the seven political prisoners in Balikpapan is a good sign. Um, a good sign because the uh, sentences handed down were, were much lighter in the end than what the prosecutors had asked for. Yeah, that is kind of messed up, right? It was so much lighter and um, it is this that the sentences are so much lighter than uh, we expected is of course a good sign, but also at the same time, it's it's one of these things that we consider like small victories and we take them and savor them because they're so rare. But at its core, of course, as, and I think people have pointed it out, it is actually still very messed up. Like the whole legal proceedings, the evidence used in their trial, it's all still actually very messed up. So yeah, I don't know how what to make of it. I'm happy that they have light sentences. I still think they should not have been in jail at all, but what do I know? I mean, we've we've spoken about uh, everyday racism, the way that feeds into structural racism, the, the perceptions of Indonesians and some of the statements of Indonesian officials. What about the media in Indonesia? How does the, the media cover these sorts of issues? Do we see 
everyday racism shaking its coverage? Or in fact, is there quite a diversity of standpoints taken by the media on events in Papua? I would not say that there is no quality journalism in Papua because there obviously are, but there are so limited of them just because the access for journalists to access Papua is already kind of difficult. Foreign journalists, I think, ooh, if you can get a access, that's what a catch. And because of this, it kind of affects the headlines here all the time. This was, of course, revealed most clearly during a riot in Wamena last year. I think it was either late August or early September, where you see differences in the kind of headline that journalists, that medias had because they had different access on the ground, if any. A lot of people were killed. Let's just call it that. Some of them were Indonesians uh, and not Papuans. It was all rumors. It was not obvious who was guilty. And for a while, there was a shroud of mystery. Eventually, the Jakarta Post, and in collaboration with Jubi, this is a local news organization, and Tirto, a more national one, managed to conduct an investigation to clear some of the details up. But most of the other national, and then when I say national here, it's almost always based in Jakarta media outlet basically repeated what the government official said. So if the news, if the headlines are racist, it's because the people are racist. And also because Papua is not really accessible to a lot of journalism. So we do not get to have like quality investigation. What we have are basically the media who do investigations in Papua and media who repeat what the government officials say. And because what the government officials say is not always, not racist, let me just put it that way, this also translates in the headlines that we have. Of course, this is compounded by the fact that almost everyone is now looking for clickbaits. Is it that sort of media landscape um, where you have a lot of articles um, written by journalists without particular access to, to Papua that prompted you to run, uh, I, I, I understand you you run a newsletter on Papua? Yes, that, that is exactly the reason we, well, not we, Fabriana Firdaus, who I understand was interviewed a few weeks ago also by Talking Indonesia, she decided to revive the Voice of Papua newsletter. So it's a team of people, there are four of us, and we publish things every month or so. And that's in English or Indonesian? Um, what what sort of content do you do you have in the Voice of Papua? The newsletter is in English. The goal of the newsletter is to amplify the work of Papuan journalists, especially Suara Papua, which is a local newspaper run by like young Papuan journalists. They have a lot of very good work, and we thought it is important for us to expose their great work to more readers. And how can, how can people access this newsletter? Oh, yeah. Uh, please subscribe. We are at uh, voiceofpapua.substack.com. Sure. We'll, uh, we'll be sure to put a link in, in the episode notes. Yeah, there's a lot more I could ask you, but I'm afraid we're well and truly out of time. Thanks so much for, for taking the time to, to discuss these issues with us today. It's been great. Thank you very much for having me. That was Ligia Giai, PhD candidate at the Asia Research Centre at Murdoch University in Perth. Today's episode marks five years of the Talking Indonesia podcast. As always, you can access the entire back catalogue of episodes for free on the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Talkie Indonesia returns on 16 July with my co-host Dr. Dirk Thompson. Until then, this has been the Talkie Indonesia podcast. Bye for now. Thank you.